Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for the week of September 7th. I'm Melissa Davlin. Last Thursday, the Idaho legislature convened in a one-day special session to pass a wide-ranging bill with $500 million in one-time tax rebates, $150 million in ongoing tax cuts, and more than $400 million in ongoing education spending. That education funding comes from existing sales tax revenue. Kelly Packer, executive director of the Association of Idaho Cities, joins me later in the podcast to explain how the education component may affect sales tax distribution to local government entities and what her her organization wishes the governor had proposed instead. But first, Miguel Legareta, president of the Associated Taxpayers of Idaho, is going to break down the tax components of the bill. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us today. Let's start with the tax rebates. This bill includes individual checks to taxpayers, either $300 or $600 for joint filers, or 10% back from your 2020 income taxes, whichever is more. Do you have any idea what percentage or roughly how many Idahoans may be getting that 10% back as opposed to the three or $600? Yeah, Melissa, the majority of Idahoans are going to see either three or $600 based on income and what they paid in state taxes. Um, where that percentage falls, uh, probably somewhere in the two-thirds of Idahoans uh, range. So the $300, $600 will be pretty consistent. And then, uh, and then of course, you, you hit a few folks that, that are above that. Um, being that this is the third time we've done it in three years, I would expect those checks to be going out extraordinarily soon, uh, certainly before the end of the year, hopefully before Christmas and and all of those sorts of things. I know it sounded like the governor's office was hoping that those checks would start going out as soon as this month. Yeah, exactly. Walk us through Idaho's existing income tax rates and what change the legislature made to those. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, it's really it's really interesting because the last few years, we've both been reducing our rate in addition to consolidating our brackets, um, which often is a little bit confusing to the taxpayer who may or may not know that, particularly when, you know, we look at a rate and say, well, Idaho's at 6%, for example. Um, there's, as of, well, prior to this session, there were four other brackets below that. Um, for those low lower income earners, for college students, uh, perhaps those with a part time job, um, et cetera, and and we also, as as of note, have a lot of zero income tax filers in the state. Um, those generally are retirees uh, living on Social Security that isn't uh, applied to state sales tax. Where we and what we've done uh, is is to get gotten rid of all of them as we move towards that and created two uh, zero tax brackets. They were at $2,500 or $5,000 of your income. You don't pay tax on it. And and that is of note and is of importance to to our lower income earners. One note I would make on it, and this is always a little bit nuanced or confusing to the taxpayer, All of our rates are also tied to an inflation index or the CPI, the consumer price index. So in essence, as things cost more, uh, the intent of changing those dollar amounts over time allows for your taxes not to go up because of inflation. So that $2,500, $500,000 amount 
is really going to be closer to, well, as of 2021, closer to 4,000 and 8,000 of your income won't have state sales tax applied, which the brilliance and the importance of that is that covers everyone, that ensures that everyone in Idaho uh, that files an income tax return or pays income tax will see somewhat of a, a break on their taxes. And that's important for those lower income earners, because technically, if you look at it on paper, their tax rate is going up to 5.8%. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Melissa. If those $2,500 amounts weren't indexed, this would have technically been a tax increase on some of the folks, uh, particularly in the second tier below our top bracket because that tier would have gone away and without uh, adding the inflation index technically would have been an increase on some of those say below 8,000, for example, as a married couple. But this, uh, as we've covered it, I did run the data and once we saw those numbers were in place, some of those reds that you're just talking about or those that would have paid more, they, they ended up going to the green or uh, paying less in taxes. Does the inflation index only apply to income tax? I I, I think, are you relating it to say sales tax or something of that nature or? Property tax specifically. Uh, with pro That's a more difficult question to answer. Um, I guess the short answer is yes, that's correct. Um, this is the inflation adjustment is specific to income tax. Property taxes, we I'm sure we can get into is much more nuanced, and I, that that one's a harder one to answer exactly because it's tied to a lot of other taxes that we're not always aware of. Um, but for example, some of our property taxes are also tied to sales taxes um, because of our state distribution formula. But but you're you're correct, uh, Melissa. It's a pretty consistent model, um, as, well as it relates to the income tax uh, to have the inflation adjustment. And we are seeing a lot of state, not a lot, I would call it a trend right now, our state's going to a flat tax as well. Um, Idaho's among the first and kind of leading that sort of renaissance, I guess, which is a good thing. What's the philosophical argument behind going to a flat tax? I, you know, I think most of us just inherently know it sounds, it's simpler, right? I mean, that's the inherent, it's, it's simpler. Uh, I, the real answer beyond that is there's a lot of, for example, pass-through entity businesses, uh, people that say own rental homes, an ice cream shop, a hardware store, that technically file through their individual income tax, which is a tiered system. So they're running their business through a tax system that's, you know, technically structured for an individual, I guess you would say. This really provides like more clarity to those type of, of, of folks, for example, because decisions are more clear. Uh, they, they, in some cases, work, for example, in the margins. You mentioned those low-income people. There's, there's employees that are high school kids. There's, you know, different types of, you know, structures to business. And for them just to have predictability where they can forecast their year, their hiring, their practices. Uh, for example, it's helpful. Um, it's also just by its nature, uh, it allows for less change, 
which is important to a lot of people, meaning um, if you change something, sometimes it's a little hidden if you're, you're, you're say, messing with the brackets or doing something there. Now we, sim we have the simplicity of if we're changing something, we're changing one thing. We're not changing four or five things that are a little bit obtuse or difficult to understand. Uh, so it's it's really a helpful, I don't know, just kind of blockade to ensure that there's a, an understanding, it's this, and if we change it, let's say we increase it, or that was even a consideration, we're, we're looking at one thing, not several. When we're talking about the average Idaho family, how will this change affect them? They'll expect both the check and some reduction in their ongoing, uh, what, what they pay ongoing with the 6 to 5.8, what we've just expressed. Uh, it's, you know, for someone around the $100,000 range in income in their household, say a married family, that would be around $120, $130 a year based on their income today. Um, that goes all the way down and up. Um, you know, you, you mentioned perhaps some of those lower income households. I saw like a $50,000 earner might be somewhere around 60 or $70 a year ongoing. Uh, so it's it's a difference. Uh, it's it's helpful. Um, and I we've always kind of saw being underneath the 6% as a potential goal uh, because we have, you know, as all states, we have a lot of things to, to look at. And, and, and in this special session, we looked at education too, as you know, and you kind of look at it all and whatever side of the aisle you're on, it's like we're we're a, a reasonably good tax state, but we're not the best. We're somewhere in the middle in most things, in most cases. And, you know, I'm not the education expert, but, you know, on both sides of that, you say, well, we're not we're somewhere wherever someone may choose to put us in whatever metric. Um, but there's always room for improvement. And. We had the fortune of being able to do both. Uh, that's a very fortunate position to be in. Is the sales tax, though, a strong enough revenue stream or a stable enough revenue stream to rely on for those dedicated expenses like that education fund? That, it's, it's just a little bit of a, I mean, it's more of a gamble if you want to look at it you know candidly uh you know there's a pot where if we're not in a recession we're probably um you know going to be uh it's good to see that the state is doing as well as it is we have so much immigration it was sort of i think it caught well i know obviously it caught everyone off guard to say we've got two billion dollars sitting around uh it was exciting to have a hundred million dollars or 50 million dollars sitting around a few years ago and so as we work through this, it's inter interesting to see how that, that revenue stream will continue. I would say that sales tax, I've tracked it throughout Idaho's history actually, has really little standard deviation. It's, it's very consistent, really, unless you look outside of kind of the Great Recession. That's, and even at that point, it was much less volatile than, than any other income that, that is tax stream. Um, but it, it stayed very consistent throughout the the history of the sales tax. You mentioned that Idaho's pretty much in the middle for a lot of metrics when it comes to tax policy. Now that 
we're under that 6% for income and corporate tax. What's next? What should lawmakers address next session? Well, our association's uh, been around since there was just property tax in the state of Idaho in 1946. And I suspect that is exactly what we will be uh, focusing on and tackling. And I know as I've been part of some of the conversations, there's some really good ideas out there um, in terms of what we can do for the taxpayer and, and, and then structurally what we can do for the system. As you, you asked earlier, um, there's, there's a lot of dynamics to property tax. There's 1,100 districts. So someone that lives across the street from you, even if we change something, they actually see an increase while you saw a decrease to an action. So that's a little bit hard to explain to a taxpayer. Um, as it relates to that question, I think there'll be some discussion about relief versus reform, meaning can we provide relief in the form, let, let's say we just, just discuss the rebate checks. Perhaps there's a way or a mechanism to provide relief while we're working on reform that's going to take more time to be reflected, say, in your tax bill that you uh, either just got, I think we're right around just getting that. And so th that's that's where I look at it as an organization. You know, can we see that same sort of premise to the property taxpayer? We'll see. Um, and I, I, I'd also say I'm one of the few people that overall appreciates our property tax system here. Um, we're in an anomaly right now. Uh, we're in a skyrocketing market. And values, although they don't always align with uh, that, those raising values and those changes, um, they do. And the last time we had, we've now had two of these black swan events, you know, back in the 06 range. And that's the last prop major property tax reform in relationship to, uh, you know, the sixth cent. And now we're in that other side where we've seen this massive increase in values. And folks get their assessments in the spring, although not tied to their taxes, when their home value is up 30%, that's a shocker thinking, that's nice if I was going to sell my home. But for my tax purposes, I'm not quite as happy about it. <laughs> and that's an understandable position to take. And it's also one, you know, in working with, I know you had uh, the Association of Cities here is like, you know, what are the needs of the local, the locals? How do those because this is a local issue at the end of the day. Property taxes are not a state tax. They're a local tax. And other than the sales tax distribution, and there are a few other elements to that, it's a local tax. And, and that's where we're having this. What does the state do? What does the local do, locals do? And what do we do together to find a, okay, we need to make sure that fundamentals are taken care of. Um, how, do we, how do we reform and or provide relief? Miguel Ligaretta, Association of Idaho Taxpayers, thank you so much for joining us today. Tax rebates and cuts were just part of the bill passed last week. The legislation also included $410 million in public education spending, with $80 million going to a newly created in-demand careers fund and $330 million going to K-12. 
That revenue comes from existing sales tax collections. Some of that money is already earmarked to go to local government entities. Kelly Packer, executive director of the Association of Idaho Cities, joined me to discuss the history of Idaho's sales tax collections and how this special session impacts the ongoing conversations about local government revenues and spending. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, last week we talked a lot about the education funding component of House Bill 1, but not so much about where lawmakers found the money. We're talking about a big investment from the sales tax distribution formula. Kelly, can you walk us through some of the history behind Idaho's sales tax and and how that distribution formula works? You bet, be glad to. Um, one thing I would just, if you don't mind, take a side note here in that, you know, we, I personally think our sales tax um, saw a major boost over the last couple of years because of all of the stimulus money that's come into the, the state. You know, people had extra money and thought, well, let's go buy that, you know, that four-wheeler or let's go buy stuff that maybe they normally wouldn't have or that they would have been saving for to, to buy in the long run or would have bought on, on you know, credit. So that's one thing I do think is important to, to note is that I don't I think our sales tax revenue is even inflated somewhat just because of the stimulus dollars. So I, I don't think we have a true picture of of a, a solid um, moving forward number as far as our sales tax. But that being said, um, the 11.5 percent that locals get is actually. Um, replacement dollars. And I think that the legislature um, and the executive branch sometimes forgets that. So clear back in the day when we moved from a territory to a state, all of us used property tax to fund any form of government. And then slowly over time, income tax was introduced and sales tax. Sales tax was introduced in 1967. And at that time, locals used property tax and what was known as business inventory tax. So if it was on the shelf, it got taxed. Um, and the legislature at that time, when they decided to implement, try again to implement sales tax into the state said, all right, locals, we're willing to go down this road, but we don't want to increase taxes necessarily on residents. So if you'll give up your business inventory tax, we'll give you 6% of the state sales tax revenue to offset the loss that you would see from that normal business inventory tax that you had been collecting over the years. That was negotiated and agreed on. And so we got at that point um, locked in at a 6% level that was shared between counties and cities and other local taxing districts. Then fast forward to the 80s and mid 80s, um, locals also used to receive some fed federal money, which was general revenue sharing from the federal government. And that was going away in 84 and 85. And the legislature at that time then negotiated with locals and said, if you promise not to raise property tax to offset the loss, we'll give you an additional 7.75% of our sales tax revenues to offset that and keep our property taxes down. And so that was agreed on that locals would not raise property taxes to offset that loss um, and that the state would then backfill with some of the sales tax revenues that they got. And if you take that 6% from the late 60s and the 7.75% the from the mid um, 80s, that's actually 13.75%. However, locals only split between themselves 11.5% right now because in 2006, when the legislature decided to go from 5 cents to 6 cents or 5% to 6% in our sales tax collections, they said, we don't want locals getting more than their fair share. And they reduced us down to 11.5%. 
So I think it's really important to remind legislators and residents that the 11.5% that locals actually get um, to help pay for some of the services that, that residents enjoy, like streets and emergency services and those types of things, that is not just generosity from the state, that's actually replacement dollars for past negotiations. When we talk about that 11.5% that the locals get today, and we talk about the roughly $400 million in education spending that the, legis that, that the legislature set aside in House Bill 1 moving forward, is that going to be a hit for local governments or is that 11.5% already set aside? That's a great question. And that was one thing that we looked at very closely when this bill came out was to make sure that that was going to come off um, in a way that would not have a negative impact long term um, to locals. Now, that being said, because it is set aside and comes out first, there could be if we, you know, when we hit harder times. But right now we've seen a lot of really good growth in sales tax revenue. And so we don't believe that that local dollars will be negatively impacted at this point. How did the Association of Idaho Cities feel about the governor's proposal when it first came out? Well, we actually sent a letter to the governor, and you can actually find that on our social media site, too. We shared it with the public. We sent it to the governor, and then we sent it to leadership in both the House and the Senate, um, and then also put it on our, our social media because we wanted residents to, re um, to be able to see what we were proposing. We felt like with the surplus and the excess dollars that it would be wiser especially since some of it is, is one-time dollars that have flown into our economy, that it'd be wiser to help shore up aging infrastructure, reducing that load on property taxes that's going to be required to maintain and, and um, manage that aging infrastructure. And so we did send a letter saying, we appreciate all you have done for roads and bridges and all that you have done for water and sewer systems, but there's a lot more that needs to be done in this state because for too long we ne neglected that and didn't do what we needed to do because we're so conservative that sometimes we hurt ourselves, right? Um, and we recommended that they, rather than go this direction, that they allow some time to pass to see how the cuts they made in the set, um, 2022 session actually impact our future revenue um, dollars. And then also recognize that, that there is some overstimulation that's maybe happened and let's put this in some infrastructure needs, aging infrastructure needs, so that that would reduce the reliance from locals on property taxes, where people are you know, hurting the most. And these are all complex issues. We're talking about property taxes, which lawmakers have tried for several years to fix. We're talking about infrastructure and transportation funding. Uh, we're talking about this distribution formula. We just saw a really, really big shift in tax policy that passed in just a day at during a special session that came nine days after the bill was first released to the public as a draft. Do you think that had this gone through the process in a regular legislative session that the end result would have been the same? No, I don't, to be honest. I don't think if they had really taken the time to slow down and take widespread testimony on the actual needs and desires of residents in this state that it would have gone this direction. They had just done income tax relief, um, right? I mean, 
And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that they're being mindful of it. But there's other things that they failed to take into account that had there been testimony, we'd have been there saying exactly what I just said to you. Yes, we sent the letter, but who all got it? Who all saw it? The, you know, the governor um, and maybe a couple of members of leadership. Did they actually share it with their bodies? I don't know. Um, we debated sharing it, but we knew that the session had already been called and, and didn't know that that would um, actually have a, a, the impact we would hope. But if I'd been there standing there talking about it, if we'd had mayors and city council members coming and testifying that these are real needs in our community and our economy is going to suffer if we don't start addressing these needs, maybe there'd have been a different outcome. I mean, yes, education is important, but we've got to find the right balance between all of the needs because as important as education is, everybody really likes it when the firefighter shows up if there's a fire at their house and everybody wants that emergency service per personnel to show up if, if their loved ones having a, an emergency, you know, a healthcare emergency. And the same with the police. If, if someone breaks into your home, you want to be able to kind of call 911 and have them respond. Well, that all takes dollars, just like education. Did you hear back from the governor's office after you sent the letter? No, I got a thank you from one of the staff members and that's it. For a long time before Governor Little became governor, previous administrations and lawmakers were pretty concerned about tapping into general funds for things like transportation, um, for public defense. Um, is sales tax a stable enough mechanism for those dedicated expenses? Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is important for everyone to recognize and one of the, the pieces of education that we're going to be focused on a lot over this next year or two, especially with new lawmakers, is that we quite often have major complaints from residents in the legislature about property tax dollars, right? The, the price tag. Yet that's the only tool they really give us to meet the service needs that our, our residents demand. They want their water to be clean and they want their sewer to, to go away when they flush the toilet and they want their parks to be mowed and they want their streets to be um, well-maintained and not full of potholes. And they, they want the emergency services especially to be responsive and, and timely. And, and, and we most of that comes from property tax dollars because it's all we're really given. And, um, and yet, when we, when those budgets that are being complained about are used to make sure that the city environment is that that attracts businesses and residents alike, that people are happy with, with where they live and work. And what's funny is we make those investments, but the return of investment, that ROI, goes to the state in the form of sales tax revenue, which is what we were talking about. So we make the investments, they get the, the revenue from it. And then complain when we're making investments to continue that way of life for those businesses and residents. And, and it's just to me a real, there's a, a, a real a problem with that. I really believe that we should focus better on how to partner from city to county to state and any other taxing districts for that matter on what's the best, most efficient way to meet all the needs. Because if that infrastructure goes away, I like to say quite often, I say it in fact to legislators, the economy doesn't travel on gravel roads, right? So if we've got cities turning their streets from paved nice roads back to gravel because they can't afford to maintain them, well, the whole state has a problem, not just that city. Are there any towns or cities across Idaho that are looking at potentially turning back to gravel roads as a reality right now? 
Um, there is one city I hate to I hate to to mention them um, specifically, but we had a city that had been working really hard on a five and ten year plan for growth, and then House Bill three eighty nine was passed. And the reason for the, the that was the, the property plans, the circuit breaker. Uh, no, it was the major the cap on property taxes and circuit breaker. Yes, it had that piece too. It had multiple pieces. It was the one that was passed in forty eight hours, so they went a whole two days instead of just one. Um, but um, the this they, this one city, smaller city, has said we want to grow just really thoughtfully and small, just a little bit more growth, so we can maintain our roads and our sidewalks better, and so that we have a better place to live for our residents and and for our students that are walking to school. They put that in place. Three eighty nine was passed, and now they legitimately are talking about having to turn their roads back to gravel because they don't have enough and aren't given the opportunity to have enough to to maintain their current roads. It, that's how real the issue is. You also mentioned water infrastructure, which as we know nationwide is not a hypothetical. Right now, the capital city of the state of Mississippi, residents cannot use their water. They're in the, under a boil order, you bet. And we have actually, as an association and our city members have been trying to focus on this for the last couple of years. We're starting to do a lot of mapping and, and, and we've got a survey out right now that's talking about how old is your infrastructure, what parts have been, you know, um, renovated and improved and, and what's your plans for future growth so that we have an idea of where we're at so that we can hopefully utilize some of the federal dollars that are coming down the pike in IIJA and the Inflation Act. Um, but the reality is it was underground, out of sight, out of mind for so long for everybody that... It, it started to get away from us. And I'm just grateful for those prior to me that recognized we have a real need and started started to go down this road of how do we thoughtfully approach this in a way that won't bankrupt people, but that will get us the system back in place that we need, that we rely on. You touched on this a little bit before. Now that the 2023 regular session is a few months away, the ship has sailed for special session House Bill 1. What is your association focusing on for the next session? Great question. We're going to have a legislative summit in November, the day before November 29th, the day before ATI and, the, and a couple of days before the legislature comes to do their reorganization. And we hope a lot of legislators will come and actually talk with our city members, our city electeds um, about these issues. One of the things we're going to do is take 90 minutes to talk about taxes, the tax history, Idaho's tax history. So they're all aware of what you and I are talking about today plus some. Um, we're going to talk about um, the investments that we make that allow them to levy a sales tax and be successful and have the money they need to run the state's um, services, um, but to recognize that that the state's only as good as its worst city and county, right? And so there needs to be partnership. Rather than being um, contrary with each other, let's find a way to work together on some of these for some of these needs. And, and I will admit, I applaud Governor Little um, and his vision this last session because he did. He started working on some of those things and we just need more of that. So we're gonna be working on that. We're putting together a manual that we can hand to new legislators that talk about a lot of these issues because no one person can be an expert on all of the policy things that are gonna be coming at them. And we've got about a 45% turnover in the legislature. So the association's focused on helping them understand tax policy and water policy and infrastructure needs and transportation, all of those things. And then we're putting together actually an academy where we're gonna continue for years to come, we hope, in educating 
our current electeds, but also building the bandwidth for future leaders. Complex issues for sure. Kelly Packer, Executive Director for the Association of Idaho Cities. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for listening. If you missed our special episode covering the extraordinary session, you can find it at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. There you'll also find links to extended interviews with Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Representatives Sally Toon, Gayanne DeMordant, Julie Yamamoto, and Senator Steve Thane about the education funding component of the bill. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy. Enjoy.